0: It's great to be with you guys this evening as we continue our study through the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. We are now officially on the back half of this doctrinal statement, and I hope that you've been richly edified up to this point in our survey throughout what we believe as a church, as encapsulated in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. My assignment for this evening's lesson is to unpack Article 10 of our doctrinal statement. It is the section... On our doctrinal statement that deals with the last things. The last things. In the 5th century, St. Augustine of Hippo provided some of the most helpful words of wisdom for how Christians should interact with one another within the local and universal church. I quote Augustine. He said, "...in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty." And in all things, charity. And essentials, unity, and non essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. End quote. Augustine's basis for making this claim was to safeguard appropriate Christian conduct when discussing biblical or theological subjects. And as Augustine points out in the phrase, in all things, charity. I think it's important for us as Christians to recognize that we should be those who strive to exhibit Christ like love towards one another at all times. As our Lord said in John chapter 13, verse 35, the world will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. You see, regardless of the subject being discussed, Christians are called to model Christ like love towards one another at all times. It is evident from this quote that Augustine wanted to make sure that the people of God never lost sight of the primacy of godly love, especially when engaging in biblical or theological discussions. And as we often see in the church today, Augustine knew that there are few things that can be more divisive amongst God's people than discussions about biblical and theological subjects. There is no doubt that this unfortunate tendency, this unfortunate tendency of Christians being divided over biblical and theological subjects played a significant role in Augustine making this distinction between essential and non-essential areas of doctrine. It would be an understatement to say that that distinction would be revolutionary. This was a revolutionary distinction that Augustine made during the 400s A.D., If you survey the past 1,600 years of church history, you'll find that Bible commentators and theologians alike have observed that Augustine was absolutely correct to make a distinction between essential and non-essential areas of theology. This is not because such a distinction first originated in the mind of Augustine. On the contrary, this was a distinction that we find rooted and grounded within the testimony of Scripture itself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3-11, through 11, we find that the Apostle Paul provides us with a vivid example of how he himself understood this crucial distinction between essential and non-essential categories of doctrine. I want you to listen to what Paul says in that passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3-11. through 11. As usual, I'll be reading out of the New American Standard translation. Paul writes, "...under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit." For I handed down to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, Christ appeared to more than five hundred brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then... He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, Christ appeared to me also. Paul continues, he says, I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. My friends, in these verses, we see the Apostle Paul affirm some of the most central doctrines of Orthodox Christianity. While this is certainly not a comprehensive list of what we could characterize as a central doctrine, Paul does provide us with several convictions that would fall into this category. In verse 3, we see the substitutionary atoning death of Christ. In verse 4, we see that Christ was dead and he was buried for three days. We also see that everything Paul is describing in this passage was done according to the Scriptures. Now, why is that significant? Well, Paul's utilization of the phrase according to the Scriptures in verses 3 and 4 demonstrate to us the absolute authority and sufficiency of God's Word. In other words, everything that we affirm about the gospel And everything that we affirm about the Christian faith as a collective whole must be derived from the testimony of Scripture. As such, the necessary implication of these verses in 1 Corinthians 15 is that the Bible and the Bible alone is to be the ultimate authority for the universal body of Christ. And of course, as described in verses 4-8, through we see our Lord Jesus Christ having experienced a literal bodily resurrection from the dead. And in doing so, Christ appeared to over 500 people prior to ascending into the kingdom of heaven. These are all realities that the Apostle Paul describes as being of first importance. This is matters of essential doctrine. In other words, Paul's usage of this particular phrase, first importance, his utilization of this phrase, indicates that everything he has said in that particular passage should be elevated to the highest degree of importance in the Christian faith. As Al Mohler has rightly noted in reflecting on this portion of 1 Corinthians 15, quote, Christianity is a comprehensive truth claim that encompasses every aspect of revealed doctrine." But it is first and foremost centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Muller continues by saying, It is true that all revealed truth is vital, invaluable, and, and life-changing, to which every disciple of Christ is fully accountable. But, here's the key, according to Muller. With that being said, there are certain truths that are of the highest importance, and that is the language Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 without qualification. End quote. My friends, if I could echo everything that Mueller just said, he's saying that essential doctrine is any belief that is definitional to the Christian faith. It is doctrine that directly impacts, shapes, and defines the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is that of which is of first importance to our faith. As such, essential doctrine is truth that a person must believe In order to be regarded as an Orthodox Christian, if one willfully denies any area of essential doctrine, then they not only lose an integral component of Christianity, but even more so, they lose Christianity altogether. My friends, if we are to willfully deny any area of essential doctrine, we are willfully subscribing to an entirely different system of religion. It's for this reason that Augustine insisted that the body of Christ be united in affirming any doctrine that is fundamental to the gospel. And ultimately, that is fundamental to our Christian faith. So we have essential subjects of doctrine. We also have areas of doctrine that are non-essential. Doctrine that is not fundamental to the gospel. They are not definitional points that define orthodox Christianity. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15 makes clear that all Christians are certainly accountable before God to accurately interpret His Word. We recognize that reality, but at the same time, we also know from other parts of Scripture that our salvation does not ultimately hinge on us having a perfect understanding of Scripture. With this in mind, any biblical or theological subject that would fall into that category, this category of doctrine that is not definitional to orthodox Christianity. We could rightly label that as being non-essential doctrine. When it comes to matters of non-essential doctrine, Christians have liberty and freedom to respectfully disagree with one another in accordance with their own conscience and in accordance with what they believe to be the most accurate teaching of God's Word. For the sake of illustration, I want to give you two perspectives on how we could view disagreements on areas of non-essential doctrine. We'll start at the macro level. At the macro level, disagreements on areas of non-essential doctrine will typically result in denominational differences. We could classify the mode and purpose of baptism, the nature of church government, and discussions on the sign gifts of the Holy Spirit as these types of non-essential doctrine. For example... One of my best friends is a minister in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. We have incredible fellowship with one another. We talk every week, and we share like-mindedness on several areas of non-essential doctrine. Of course, we share unanimous agreement on areas of essential doctrine. But here's a key. Here's a good illustration of how this macro level of non-essential doctrinal disagreement plays itself out on a practical basis. Because he and I disagree on the mode and purpose of baptism, and because he and I disagree on how the local church should be governed, we could never be members of the same local church. We certainly could never do ministry together as fellow pastors. He's a committed Presbyterian. I'm a committed Baptist. But nevertheless, despite our disagreements on baptism and church polity, we are both committed followers of Jesus Christ. In other words, our convictions about baptism and how the local church should be governed are not definitional to Christian uh, to Christianity. Our, our beliefs on ecclesiology that's the doctrine of the church that those beliefs, those differences of opinion are not foundational about what it means to be a Christian. at the end of the day it just means that we freely disagree on some areas that are in accordance with what we believe to be the most accurate representation of the Word of God. That's a good picture from my personal life as to how we could understand what I like to call macro-level disagreements on areas of non-essential doctrine. But then there's also what we could call micro-level disagreements on areas of non-essential doctrine. Micro-level disagreements on areas of non-essential doctrine. Disagreements on these subjects are certainly common across a denomination, and they're often common amongst members of the same local church. If you turn to your left or to your right this evening, I can guarantee you that you share micro-level disagreements on areas of non-essential doctrine. Some pastors serving within the same local church context even share disagreements of this type. Let me give you a few examples of what these types of disagreements could be. Whether you should homeschool or send your kids to public school. Homeschool versus public school education would be an example of a micro-level disagreement on an area of non-essential doctrine. Whether or not Christians should drink alcohol or get tattoos. That would be another example of what would fall into this category. How about the age of the universe? The timing of the rapture? One's understanding of the millennium in Revelation 20. These are four. These are good examples, real life examples, of how Christians can share disagreements on micro-level areas of non-essential doctrine, and yet in doing so, still enjoy rich fellowship and even still serve together as members or even fellow pastors within the same local church context. When we talk about these areas of micro-level disagreements, we're talking non-essential doctrinal matters, when we talk about these areas of micro-level disagreements, it is of utter importance for us as Christians to model grace, patience, and Christ-like love towards one another. Unfortunately, many Christians and many local churches have divided on micro-level areas of non-essential doctrine. And I can tell you tonight by the authority of the Word of God that there's nothing that Satan loves more than for God's people to be divided on these types of disagreements. Now, with all of that having been said, I know what Many of you are asking yourself right now, what in the world does any of that have to do with Article 10 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000? It's a good question, but I wanted to provide you with a preface to this lesson by saying this. What we're talking about tonight, this doctrine of the last things, contained in Article 10 of the Baptist Faith and Message, it's a subject that has divided Christians perhaps more than any other area of theology in the past 100 years. If you look at the past 100 years of church history, this particular area of theology is more divisive than just about anything else. So with that in mind, let's dive into what we affirm as Southern Baptists on this highly controversial subject of theology. And in doing so, remember the utter importance of modeling Christ-like love, patience, and grace towards one another. Subject to the last things, what is meant by the last things? Things. The technical theological term that has been used throughout church history to characterize this doctrine is eschatology. Eschatology. I heard Brother Robert mention that today during the morning services. Eschatology, or the study of the last things, is one of the most complex and most controversial categories in all of theology. As such, we must be extra intentional to exercise the highest degree of patience graciousness, and charity towards those who share disagreements with us on this topic. It's with this concern in mind that led the framers of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 to be very meticulous in what they affirmed as they put together this portion in our doctrinal statement. Given the highly complex and highly controversial nature of eschatology, the framers of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 do not take an official stance On any particular eschatological position. In page 115 of the Baptist Faith and Message workbook, we are provided with the following commentary. If you have a workbook, you'll see it there. The authors of the workbook wrote this regarding this doctrine of eschatology. Here's a direct quote. Since the New Testament speaks in broad terms about last things, it is to be expected that problems would arise as to the interpretation of details. For instance, Baptist interpreters have historically differed as to the number of comings, resurrections, judgments, and the millennium, along with with certain other details as to the end of the age. It is sufficient to say that one's position as to details has never been a test of orthodoxy among Baptists." When considering Article 10 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, We do not see any eschatology being presented, at least not in a macro sense. We find that there are many subjects related to eschatology that are simply left unaddressed in this portion of our doctrinal statement. So then what are we doing here tonight? Here's what we do see in this section, my friends. Here's the key. We see in our doctrinal statement regarding this doctrine, this subject of the last things, we see every aspect of biblical eschatology that is definitional to orthodox Christianity. That's what we're affirming. In the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, in Article 10, we see everything that Christians must affirm from Scripture in order to be considered orthodox believers. Whether a Baptist, whether a Presbyterian, a Lutheran, an Anglican, a Methodist, or any other member of a Protestant denomination, all Orthodox Christians will necessarily affirm the statements contained in Article 10. This was a strategic choice made by the framers of the Baptist faith in Message 2000. There's no doubt about it. The emphasis of this article is to highlight the unity that Southern Baptists should enjoy in Biblical orthodoxy than to go into great detail as to micro-level disagreements that could arise when studying this controversial subject of the last things. This does not mean that the finer details of eschatology are not important for us to study. This This also does not mean that we should never talk about the finer details of eschatology. We should have those conversations, and there's an appropriate time and place to have those conversations. But with this in mind, as we turn to Article 10 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, We should be aware that this portion of our doctrinal statement is a particular and strategic means for Southern Baptists to be grounded in our theological unity amongst a very controversial and potentially divisive subject. So if you are here tonight to get all the secrets and the ins and outs about what's going to happen between now and the return of Christ... I'm very sorry to disappoint you. I know that there's several of you in here tonight, so um, I'm not going to give you all the answers as to what you can expect to happen between tonight and the return of Christ. But what I can give you is I can give you a biblical survey of every point of eschatological doctrine that you must affirm if you are to be a biblically orthodox Christian. For our purposes tonight and for the remainder of this lesson, let's go ahead now and review Article 10 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. I'm going to read this section of the doctrinal statement out loud. You go ahead and follow along with me in your handouts. If you didn't grab one, there's one on that back table in the corner. Article 10 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. It says this, quote, God... In his own time and in his own way, will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. And the righteous and the resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. End quote. It's Article 10 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. My friends, within the four sentences that we just read together, we see the framers of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 make three biblical affirmations. Each of the three biblical affirmations found in Article 10 would fall under the category of essential doctrine. In other words, what we see in Article 10 contains three key eschatological distinctives that we as Christians must affirm in order for us to be orthodox in this doctrine. And by the outworking of the Holy Spirit, we know that all true Christians will ultimately affirm each of the three eschatological distinctives that we find in this section of the Baptist Faith in Message 2000. As we work our way through each of these four sentences, I'm going to provide you with three headings to help guide us throughout the remainder of our study. The first heading that I'm going to provide you with will pertain to the eschatological distinctive being referenced to in the first sentence of Article 10. The second heading that I'll be providing will be associated with the eschatological distinctive contained in the second sentence of Article 10. And the third heading that I'll be providing to you towards the end of our lesson will relate to the eschatological distinctive that's being described in the third and fourth sentences of Article 10. So with these three headings that will be governing the rest of our study, I'll go ahead and provide you the first. And let's now begin our analysis sentence by sentence, and of course in adherence with the Word of God, as to what the framers of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 are communicating regarding this doctrine of the last things. First heading. In the first sentence of Article 10, we see the framers of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 affirming this principle. God is sovereign over history. God is sovereign over history. That's the first heading for this study on Article 10 tonight. You'll recall from our previous studies on the doctrine of God and on the doctrine of salvation that we've spent a considerable amount of time examining this concept of the sovereignty of God. Just for the sake of review, let me refresh your minds as to how the Bible describes the reality about God's absolute sovereignty. Sovereignty. The word sovereignty simply means to rule or to have authority. To rule or to have authority. That's what we mean when we speak of God's sovereignty. When we apply this concept of sovereignty to God, when speaking of God's absolute rule or absolute authority over all of creation, we are describing His absolute control over everything that He has brought into existence. There are several implications that are derived from the biblical doctrine of God's sovereignty. Sovereignty. Let me give you a few of them. There is not a realm of created reality that is not subject to the lordship and authority of the triune God. For God to be sovereign means he is the absolute and total Lord over everything he's created. Another key implication of the sovereignty of God is that there's never a moment in redemptive history that does not occur exactly as God has decreed for it to from eternity past. And another key implication of God's sovereignty is that there's never a moment in which God is not in perfect control over his created order. I want you to think about the biblical depiction of God's sovereignty. Let this sink into your soul. Whether talking about the eternal destiny of human beings, whether to heaven or to hell. Whether talking about the formulation of natural law. Whether talking about how the universe is sustained or how the course of human history is going to ultimately come to pass. We know in light of the biblical depiction of God's sovereignty that he is the one who has appointed every detail from before the foundation of the world. He's the one that enables everything to take place in time. And he's the one that will ultimately see his eternal purposes accomplished going to the end of time, ultimately consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. My friends, at every moment, despite the free choices of man and the myriads of events that unfold throughout the universe, y'all talked about a, a molecule being in a distant galaxy. You know, that molecule out there, millions and billions of light years away from earth, is just as much under the sovereignty of God as you and I are here in this room tonight. At every moment, my friends, God is exercising absolute rule and control over his creation. And it's unfolding exactly as he has decreed for it to from before the foundation of the world. Let me give you a few verses that testify to these realities from both the Old and New Testaments. I know that's a lot to throw at you. Let's see what the Word of God says. Exodus 4.11. The text says this. But the Lord said to Moses... Who has made the human mouth? Or who makes anyone unable to speak or deaf or able to see or blind? Who does those things? We see the answer. Is it not I, the Lord? Your theology to affirm the absolute sovereignty of God, your theology must say that God is has made the human mouth. He has determined who will be able to speak and who will be deaf. He has determined who will be able to see and who will be blind. He's just as much decreed for COVID-19 to come to pass as He did for each and every one of our salvations to come to pass. That's what's being affirmed in The doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty. Moving forward in the book of Job. We we talked a little bit about the book of Job this morning during corporate worship. Job 23 verses 13 and 14 say this. God is unique and who can make him turn? Whatever he desires, he does it. For he carries out what is destined for me. And many such decrees are with him. Psalm 115.3 our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Not a whole lot of middle ground there, my friends. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. It is God who changes the times and the periods. He removes kings and He appoints kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to people of understanding. There's an Old Testament depiction of the absolute sovereignty of God. He's also the same in the New Testament. Acts 2, 22 and 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. We need to hear these words as well today. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him, referring to Christ, in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The most horrific tragedy in all of human history, the execution of the perfect, sinless God man, worked in perfect adherence with God's eternal plan. Yeah. He's absolutely sovereign over good, over evil, and he works all of those things together for the eternal good of his people. That's the sovereignty of God, my friends. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Just let these words minister to your soul tonight if you're in Christ. The Apostle Paul writes. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who were called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified." From start to finish, my friends, God is sovereign. He's in control of your salvation if you're in Christ tonight. Ephesians 1.11 In Christ, we also have obtained an inheritance, having been, here it is, predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things in accordance with the plan of His will. Now, does that verse say that everything works in accordance to the plan of God's will except for evil, except for our hardships, or disease, or famine, or personal problems, financial problems. No, everything works in accordance with God's eternal plan and purposes. And as we just read from Romans 8, it's for your good if you're a believer. It's for your eternal good. Lastly, from the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9-10. through 10, Paul writes, God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Amen. Here it goes and then but. So this was worked out in eternity, right? God is sovereign from eternity past. Let's look at it in time. But has now been revealed God's grace, his purposes and salvation from all eternity has now been revealed by the appearing of our of our savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. My friends, we worship and serve a God who is in absolute control of everything. As such, should it be any surprise to us that our Baptist Faith and Message 2000 would affirm that in God's own time and in His own way, He will bring the world to its appropriate end. It's absolutely unthinkable to suggest otherwise. If God is absolutely sovereign from eternity past to eternity future All events, including the last things, will be worked out to perfectly accomplish God's eternal purposes. As we interact with the subject of eschatology, we are also considering something beyond just the end of history itself. We're we're specifically talking about the last things, of course, but even in a broad sense, eschatology can be understood by the process by which God brings about the end of history. So, God is sovereign over both the outcome and He's sovereign over the process. I love how Gerhardus Vosch describes the intricacies of this reality of God's sovereign control over all events going to the consummate fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth and eternity future. Gerhardus Vosch describes how all this works together in his Reformed Dogmatics textbook. I want to give you this quote. I think you'll be blessed by it. Vosch writes this, eschatology, doctrine of the last things, eschatology encapsulates or encompasses the reality that history and the course of which we are situated in every other period of time will ultimately be worked together to reach a conclusion. It is not an endless process, Voss says. Rather, history will ultimately end with the accomplishment of a definite goal. As such, history has a boundary and has limits to it that were set by God himself from eternity past and is being worked together for his own glory and for the good of his people. Voss concludes, Whereas history had a beginning with God's creation of all things, so also will it have an ending at the glorious return of Jesus Christ and the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth." End quote. This was affirmed by our Lord himself in Matthew 24, 36. History has an end, and nobody knows the day or the hour in which that end will take place except God himself. We might not know all the details of eschatology. We can debate them until the cows come home, and quite frankly, some of the greatest men who've ever been involved in the body of Christ, from the time Christ ascended into glory to literally the present moment that we're sitting in this room. Some of the greatest minds have shared incredible disagreements on finer details of eschatology. But you want to know something they've all agreed on? It's this. Jesus Christ is coming again. He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. He's going to inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth as described in Revelation 21 and 22. And even though there's a lot of details that we can debate and have charitable discussions about, fundamentally, Any and every Orthodox Christian can, will, and must agree that our Lord and Savior will come again in glory. And what a blessed time that will be. The God who is absolutely sovereign over all things will someday, in his own time and in his own way, bring this world to its appropriate end. Do you long for that day tonight? I know I certainly do. That's the first heading. God is sovereign over history. But the second heading associated with the second sentence contained in Article 10 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, I want to give you that heading in this way. This summarizes the second sentence. Jesus Christ is returning to judge. This is a good dovetail from God's sovereignty to Jesus Christ's reign and return as judge. Jesus Christ is returning to judge. Second sentence of Article 10. Let me read that sentence again for you. You can see it in your handouts, of course. The framers write, according to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised, and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. One of the most essential doctrines that has been championed throughout all of church history is that Christ is going to return to earth personally, visibly, and in glory. And as we just found at the very beginning of the second sentence contained in article 10, this visible and personal return of our Lord Jesus Christ is in accordance with what? His promise. His word. His promise. His testimony. And there are several places in the New Testament that we could turn to in which Jesus or his apostles, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they promise that Christ will someday return to earth after ascending into heaven. There's many places that I could turn to. I want to minister the Word of God to you tonight, so I'm going to give you several, some from the Gospel records and some from other letters contained in the New Testament. Some of these are quite lengthy, but just meditate on the concepts that are being discussed here regarding Christ coming back to earth to judge. The first text we're going to read is found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24, verses 36-44. to It's in the Olivet Discourse. There's been more ink spilled on the Olivet Discourse than just about any other place in New Testament scholarship. But you turn there. Brother Robert actually referenced this, quote, uh, this passage today in his sermon. Matthew 24, verses 36-44. through 44. Great passage. would encourage you to talk about it at home with your spouse or your friends during the week. Begin reading in verse 36. Christ says this, But about that day and hour, referring to the day and hour in which he'll return to judge, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. At that time, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left behind. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, Christ says, if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready as well. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. Mm-hmm. My friends, Christ could return right now. You know, when I was preparing this message, I, I had kind of an epiphany or maybe even an out-of-body experience. I'm not trying to sound too weird or mystical. But as I was preparing this sermon, I thought, you know, Christ could come back when you're preaching this to the brothers and sisters at First Baptist Edna. And the reality is that's true. We, we just don't know when Christ is going to return. We do know to in a certain degree he's not going to come before the last elect saint who was, de- who was declared to be saved from before the foundation of the world comes to saving faith. We know that he's not going to come before that. He's going to make sure every person whom he died on the cross for is able to come to saving faith. But other than that, my friends, we have no idea when the end is going to be. We need to be prepared. We need to live in light of the imminence of Christ's second coming. The next text I want to read comes from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62. The text says this Jesus kept silent and did not offer any answer. The high priest was questioning him and said, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Most High? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Pretty clear promise there. Not only does he claim to be God, he claims to be the Son of God, but he also says, I'm coming again. You're going to see me doing it too someday. You're going to see me coming again. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18, one of Brother Robert's favorite passages of Scripture. The Apostle Paul writes, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, And the dead in Christ will rise again. Then we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, here's the pastoral application. Comfort one another with these words. Paul doesn't go into the intricacies of when Christ is coming back, but he does say this. The fact that he is coming back again, that should be a means of comforting one another. He's coming back again. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 and just as it is destined for people to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await Him. James chapter five verses seven and eight. Do you see a pattern here? If you've ever heard anybody say that the New Testament never predicts the second coming of Christ, they've either never read the New Testament or they're just liars. And it's typically a combination of the two. James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. James writes this, Therefore, be patient, brothers and sisters, until, when? The coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. I know I've got several youth in here who we're working our way through the book of James. And though we might not be in this part of the book of James for another year or so, I can assure you that James knew good and well as the half-brother of Christ that he was coming again. And lastly, 1 John 2.28. Now, little children, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not draw back from him in shame at his coming. His return is near, my friends. His return is near. There are many critics of Christianity, I just kind of got ahead of myself a few moments ago. There are many critics of Christianity who say that Jesus either never intended for his followers to believe that he would rise from the dead or return to earth in the future. These verses that I just read, I think I had one, two, three, four, five, six passages alone. There's more I could have read. But these six passages in and of themselves demonstrate that those claims are demonstrably false. They are completely untenable with the testimony of Scripture. Any honest and straightforward reading of what Jesus actually said makes it abundantly clear to us. Christ believed that He was God, and Jesus believed that He was going to return to earth someday in judgment. I've stated in the past, and this is a very powerful tool you can use in sharing your faith with unbelieving friends or family members. Every human being who will ever live has to deal with these claims made by Jesus and about Jesus in the Scripture. And when we're confronted with the testimony of Scripture, we are only left with three options. Only three options. Number one, first option, Christ was a liar. And through his lies, he has offered false hope to billions of people over the past 2,000 years. I want you to let that really sink into your soul. If Christ was a liar, he has intentionally deceived billions over the past 2,000 years. And you and I are fools for believing them. That's what's at stake with these claims. We need not trivialize that. Second option. Christ was a liar, option one. Option two, Christ was a madman. He was just misinformed about his own identity. He was having an identity crisis. Let's just say that was the case. still doesn't undermine the crime committed If Christ was really just a madman and not God incarnate, he has still deceived billions of people over the past 2,000 years. So if either of those two cases are true, number one, we're fools for being here. We need to go out and get better hobbies. Um, And secondly, and most importantly, we have no hope if if these are true. He's either a liar or a madman. But there's a third option, and we all know this to be the truth. By the word of God and the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That Jesus Christ was exactly who he claimed to be. And because this is true, he is the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. And he's coming again to judge someday. The questions that I have for us tonight are simply this. Are you eagerly awaiting the second coming of Christ? And are you living every day with joyful anticipation of being with him? I pray that we all would. Now, before we move on any further in our examination of this portion of Article 10, it's necessary for us to spend some time unpacking the final clause of the second sentence. I talked to our youth again today during Sunday school, encouraging them to come and be a part of this lesson, because we're going to talk a little bit here about the judgment. The judgment. The question I need us to consider in light of what's contained in the second clause here, the final clause, rather, of the second sentence is this. What did the framers of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 mean when they described the dead being raised? And here's the key. Christ judging all men in righteousness. A lot of us assume that Christ is going to certainly judge unbelievers. But what did the framers of the Baptist Faith and Message mean by all men? Does this mean that we're going to face a judgment too as Christians? We're going to talk about this here a little bit. Now, I need to make one note uh, in light of what we talked about in that lengthy preface about the essential doctrine versus non-essential doctrine categories. I want you to know there is significant debate among Southern Baptists and Evangelical Protestant Christians as a whole as to the micro-level details of how the final judgment will transpire. Some believe that there will be one final judgment experience. Some believe there will be multiple final judgment type experiences. Let me just say, regardless of where you fall in that spectrum, those are micro-level areas of non-essential doctrine. The foundational, definitional, biblical reality, you and I must affirm, is that there will be a final judgment, and all men will participate in it. But the finer details about how many, and the timing, and all of that, great and important conversations that we can have amongst ourselves. We need to be gracious and patient, and we do have those conversations, but... They're not really what's foundational. And the Baptist faith and message is very intentional, very strategic in saying, you just need to focus on the fact that he is coming and he's going to judge all men. Before we talk about what those judgments are going to look like, broadly speaking, I want to read the key texts that pertain to this final judgment. What are the key texts that pertain to the final judgment experience being referenced to in the second sentence of Article 10? The key texts that we're going to read together are Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, Romans chapter 14, verse 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. I hope you guys are quick with your Bibles or you have your Bible on your phone because we're going to be going uh, through a lot of places here in the New Testament, but I think you'll be blessed in doing so. Let's start with the passage in Matthew. Again, I think this was even referenced today, at least in passing, by Brother Robert. So great reminders for us here this evening. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. Our Lord says this, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, talking to believers, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There's that sovereignty thing coming back up again. He can't get around it. Christ says, For I was hungry... And you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. Verse 41. Now he's talking to unbelievers. So this is the final judgment. Believers, come and enter into my kingdom. Unbelievers, here's what Christ is going to say. Depart from me, you accursed people, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer. Same same responses that the believers gave. Lord, when did we see these things? And then of course, verse 45. Christ says, I say to you to the extent that you did not do it for the one of the least of these, you did it to me also. Or excuse me, you did not do it for me also. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So there's a whole other sermon in there about Christian hospitality and us needing to minister to those in our lives. But for our purposes tonight, the focal point is there's going to be a final judgment. Sheep are going to go into glory and the goats are going to go to eternal damnation. And that's a sobering reality. Very sobering reality. Romans 14.10. Paul writes, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Okay? In context, talking about matters of Christian liberty. Don't have time to get into the details of how this verse fits into that context. The main point I want you to take away is that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Paul's writing to believers in the book of Romans. Talking about believers. So Christ has affirmed judgment for believers and unbelievers. Paul's affirmed a judgment for believers. First Corinthians three eleven through fifteen this describes how believers and non believers a little bit more details about what their judgment's gonna actually look like. Verse eleven. He writes, For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation of our faith. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet only so as through fire. A lot of controversy among this particular set of verses. Don't have time to get into those. We can talk about them at a later time. The point is, it's going to be a judgment for believers. It's going to be a judgment for believers, not just non-believers. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. Writing to believers here. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Now we're getting back to unbelievers. The Apostle John writes this, I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, just like Christ affirmed, judgment for believers and a destination for believers. Judgment for unbelievers, destination for unbelievers. So, five key passages there, my friends, regarding the final judgment experience of Christians and non-Christians. I just gave you a lot to chew on. You're probably asking yourself something along these lines. How do these passages relate to one another? Do we? Are these talking about one instance of judgment or are there separate instances of judgment? What should we take from those passages? My friends, that's your homework tonight. Your homework is to research this further on your own, to dive into the Scripture, and see for yourselves what you believe to be the most accurate account of how these passages relate to one another. Down the road, if you guys are really that interested It'd probably take more than an hour or so, but I'd be more than willing to give you all a 30,000-foot flyover of the four major eschatological views that have been held throughout church history. Some of you all probably hoped that I would do that tonight, but of course, according to the Testimony of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000... Baptists don't take an official position on eschatology. So um, we'll have to cover that at a later time, and I'd be more than happy to do so. You're also welcome to come to me, and I'll be more than happy to share you my personal opinion about where I stand on those judgments. But again, what do we take away from those passages? What's the so what? What's the practical pastoral application for you to walk out of here with tonight? Here it is. There's going to be a time in the future in which Christians and non-Christians will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. If we were to be Orthodox Christians, then we must necessarily affirm this reality. This is a matter of essential doctrine. And Southern Baptists have rightly understood this. That Christ was going to come, he is going to come in the future, he's going to return not secretly, he's going to return visibly, personally, publicly, in glory, and he's going to judge all men in righteousness. We must affirm that to be biblical and to be orthodox. And that principle is going to take us now into the third and final eschatological distinctive contained in Article 10 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Let me just remind you of the first two. Distinctive number one and corresponding with sentence number 1 god is sovereign over history eschatological distinctive number 2 and corresponding with sentence number 2 in article 10 jesus christ is returning to judge measure 2 first two eschatological distinctives here's the third all humanity has an eternal destination All humanity has an eternal destination. Number one, God is sovereign over history. Number two, Jesus Christ is returning to judge. And number three, all humanity has an eternal destination. I want you to read with me the third and fourth sentences of article 10 before we move any further. The text says this, The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. As we just saw a few moments ago, and as I've reiterated on several occasions over the past several minutes, those five New Testament passages and the comprehensive testimony of the New Testament clearly indicate that you and I and every other human being who's ever lived and will ever live will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ someday. But with that reality in mind, when we think of the eternal destination of all human beings. We find that Christians and non-Christians will have drastically different experiences, not only when they stand before the Lord, but they're going to have drastically different experiences leading up to their respective judgments. For the purposes of being as clear as I can be for the Word of God, I want us to consider the details of how believers and unbelievers are each going to experience Their eternal journey from the time they experience their earthly death to the time they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the eternal journey and ultimately the eternal destination of believers and unbelievers? You see, you and I are going to have a journey. A journey that goes even beyond our time spent on this earth. Let me unpack that a little bit for you. Since the third sentence of Article 10 is a description of unbelievers, it's only appropriate for us to begin our consideration to this question and to this subject by addressing the eternal journey and destination of the unsaved. What does that look like? Well, at the moment that the unbeliever dies, starting with the unsaved, at the moment that the unbeliever dies, they immediately enter into a theological state, or excuse me, they enter into a. well, they enter into what theologians call the intermediate state. All unbelievers and Christians, for that matter, will enter into a, a period, if you will, called the intermediate state. What is the intermediate state? What's this period? What's this part of their eternal journey that theologians refer to? It's this. The intermediate state simply refers to the conscious, ex- the conscious existence that people have between their physical death And the resurrection of their body. Whether saved or unsaved, each of us will enter into the intermediate state unless Jesus Christ first returns. Now, the intermediate state that unbelievers will go to at the moment of their death is a place called Hades. The word Hades comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament term for the realm of the dead. Some of you may be familiar with its corresponding Hebrew term, it's called Sheol. Sheol refers to the realm of the dead. So the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates Sheol to Hades. You and I typically refer to this place as hell. That's the modern synonym in our English present-day vernacular for this term Hades. But in any case, regardless of which term you want to use, Sheol, Hades, or hell, those terms are particularly and narrowly focusing on the intermediate state Of unbelievers between the time that they experience their earthly death and the time that Christ returns in earth to judge. There are several passages in Scripture that describe the intermediate state. The two that I want us to focus on are from Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 16. Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 16. The first, Mark chapter 9, the verses we'll be turning to are verses 42 through 48. In this particular passage, Christ makes several references and and graphically illustrates to us what this intermediate state is going to be like for every unbeliever. So every person right now who's in Hades, this is what they're going through. This is what they're going through. Christ says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it is better for him if a heavy millstone is hung around his neck And he is thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life with one hand than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. And if your foot is causing you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life without a foot than having your two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye is causing you to sin, throw it away. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not extinguished. The principle of these verses is simply this. Flee from sin. Eliminate anything in your life that would prevent you from entering into an unbroken, unhindered pattern of sin. Sin. It's better to withhold from all the pleasures and all the cares of this world that could cause you to stumble and potentially prove that you were never saved to begin with than it would be to abstain from those pleasures on this side of glory and enter into life. I don't know about you, but I certainly would not want to wake up someday in a place where the fire is not extinguished. Unquenchable fire. Conscious torment. Perfect, righteous judgment. On the unsaved. There are people there right now, as I'm saying this, who are in Hades and they are in everlasting misery. We find much of the same imagery from this passage in Mark 9 being reiterated by our Lord in the parable of the rich man Lazarus. Many of you are familiar with this parable. Luke chapter 16. I'm just going to read verses 23 and 25 for our purposes tonight. Our Lord says this, describing this intermediate state. He says, In Hades, the rich man raised his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his arms. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. A lot of dispute as to whether or not uh, we should take this parable literally. All I can say is this, my friends, if we're going to use sound biblical interpretation, I think it's best to leave it at this. The picture doesn't even scratch the surface of the reality. If this is just a picture of what's to come, then the reality will be far beyond what's seen here. And if it's just what's seen here in this text, in this parable in Luke 16, that's bad enough. It's a terrifying, horrendous place to be, Hades. In light of both of those passages that I just read, I want to make sure that you and I, from a pastoral perspective, leave here with a very important takeaway. The intermediate state that unbelievers enter into is absolutely dreadful. And the fact of the matter is, there is no second chances for them. There is no opportunity for them to better themselves, as it were, to leave this place of torment and to enter into glory. Their chances are over. It's done. When Jesus returns to judge all mankind Every unbeliever, after spending potentially thousands of years in Hades, they're only going to be resurrected to stand before Him, and then they're going to face a perfect judge. Their works are going to be evaluated against the Ten Commandments, which are God's perfect standard of morality, and they're going to fall short of the standard that God demands at that judgment, which is absolute perfection in thought, word, and deed. Every single unbeliever is going to be declared guilty and Christ will show no mercy. We read in Revelation chapter 20, just moments ago about what that judgment is going to be like. I'll read it again just to keep it fresh in your minds because I, I really want to emphasize this to you. This is a dreadful, dreadful place. It should break our hearts thinking about the fact that people are going there right now. As I preach this message, people are dying and are finding themselves in this place of misery Revelation chapter 20, verses 13 through 15. I'll read it again. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I know this sounds much like doom and gloom, But if you and I actually believe this, take take a step back, okay? I've just given you an onslaught of how dreadful this intermediate state is, right? If we believe this testimony from Scripture, this should motivate you and I more than ever before to take the good news of Jesus Christ to everybody that God gives us the opportunity to. We should be more motivated than ever before to proclaim Christ and Him crucified to a lost and dying world. Because guess what happens, my friends? They go from the intermediate state to a perfect judge to the lake of fire, which is the the consummate, eternal, eschatological dwelling place for the unsaved. You and I should never want any person to go to that place. This is not academic or theoretical or hypothetical realities. This isn't a game. This is life and death. This is eternity hanging in the balance. We need to be faithful in taking the good news of God's free mercy, grace, and forgiveness that's offered to all who will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We just considered the intermediate state and the... Consummate, eternal eschatological destination of the unsaved from sentence three of the Baptist Faith and Message. We also need to turn and consider what the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says regarding the eternal journey and ultimately destination of those who are believers. And that corresponds, of course, with sentence four, as I said earlier. Like the unbelievers, all Christians who die prior to the return of Christ Likewise, enter into an intermediate state of their own. The intermediate state for believers, contrary to the intermediate state of the unbelievers, is a conscious, peaceful, blissful existence in a place that the Bible calls heaven. My friends, at the moment that you and I die, if you're in Christ tonight, at the moment that we die, assuming Christ doesn't return first, our soul will be instantaneously transported. Into the presence of our glorified Lord and Savior in the intermediate state that we know as heaven. There are several passages that describe this reality in the New Testament. Let me give you a few that stood out to me as I prepared this lesson. Luke chapter 23, verses 42 through 43 says this The thief on the cross was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Just remember me. You are who you said that you were, and of course, we know the thief on the cross at one point was openly mocking Christ, but he came to his senses, and, he, and, he, and he, in his mind, he thought it was too late. Jesus, you just remember me. And here's what Jesus says to him. The grace of our Lord is just insurmountable. He says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in heaven. It's never too late, my friends. You can be moments before your death, and you are still not outside the bounds of God's saving, mercy, love, and forgiveness. I trust all in here today are saved. Maybe you know people in your life. I'm far too wicked. I've made too many mistakes. God could never forgive me. That's not true, my friends. Even to the last dying breath, it is never too late for a sinner to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I may just say, I have, you heard me just affirm 100% affirm. God is absolutely sovereign over everything that ever happens. That does not negate the reality that you and I have the responsibility, and we should as Christians have a desire to evangelize and witness to a lost and dying world. I'm as staunch as there is in believing in the absolute sovereignty of God, and I am as staunch as there is about sharing the glorious gospel of God's free mercy and grace in Christ alone. But we continue. Acts chapter 7, verses 55 through 60. This is a beautiful text. I've always wanted to preach on Acts 7. It's one of the greatest uses in the New Testament of the Old Testament. Stephen gives this incredible talk about the history of redemption. Leading up to this, he makes the Jewish religious leaders upset because he convicted them of putting Christ to death. And in verse 55, we pick up in the narrative. Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently into heaven and saw the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they shouted with loud voices and covered their ears and rushed at him with one mind. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. We know that to be the Apostle Paul. Verse 59. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Stephen says his last words, what a way to die. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then, having fallen on his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Stephen said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. But Stephen not saying you and I are going to see Christ with the outer eye waiting for us at the right hand of God as we take our last breath. Maybe you will. You never know. But the reality is this. Stephen knew he was entering into the presence of his Lord and Savior yeah. despite facing a horrific death. Yes. 2 Corinthians 5.8, the Apostle Paul says this, We are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Philippians 1, through 24. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Wow, that's a remarkable statement. How can this be? Paul goes on. For if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sakes. You see, Paul knew that to live is Christ, but to die is gain, because he knew very well who he was going to be greeted by upon leaving this realm and entering into the intermediate state. Those are just a few samplings from the New Testament about this reality. And as all of these references indicated, this is not soul sleep we're talking about. This is not the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. The intermediate state is a wonderful, joyful, blissful reunion with all the redeemed saints of all generations up to the return of Christ. And of course, best of all, the full glory of God and our Lord Jesus Christ will be there. We will be with Him and we will be with all of the redeemed. This is the intermediate state. Until the moment of His return, all Christians can welcome experiencing earthly death Because it is simply the pathway to entering into the presence of their Lord and Savior. But as we learn from our consideration of the eternal destination of unbelievers, there is yet a final judgment and an eschatological, consummate, eternal destination reserved for all followers of Jesus Christ. And what does that look like? Well, we know from Scripture that every person who has ever been saved throughout redemptive history is going to have to stand before Christ. I cited earlier from Romans 14.10, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11-15, and 2 Corinthians 5.10, that all people, regardless of being a believer or an unbeliever, is going to have to give an account for their life before Christ. But here's the, here's the difference. Here's the takeaway. Here's what you need to know as a Christian. Unlike the final judgment experience of unbelievers... The judgment of believers will not be one of condemnation. Let me say that again. Unlike the final judgment experience of unbelievers, the judgment of believers will not be one of condemnation. We know from passages like Romans 8:1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 14 through 21 that after coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ, all believers are completely and forever forgiven for all sin committed. Past present, and future. Every sin committed by the Christian was perfectly atoned for at the cross when Jesus bore an eternity's worth of God's wrath in their place. When Christ said, die it is finished, paid in full. That's the reality, my friends, if you're a Christian. You don't have a single drop of God's wrath, judgment, or condemnation awaiting you when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that through faith alone, God credits the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to the Christian and eternally regards them as if they had lived his perfect life without sin. That's the glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone that we studied during our consideration of Article 4 of the Baptist Faith in Message 2000. But that also raises a very interesting question. If there's no condemnation for the Christian to ever experience, what's the point of having a final judgment? Why must Christians stand before the Lord Jesus Christ if there's no condemnation or judgment that awaits them? It's a very good question, and tragically it's a question that has been often neglected by systematic theologians throughout church history. One of my best friends in his doctoral thesis on the subject of the second coming of Christ and preaching with urgency addressed that particular question. And I think he gives us one of the finest answers to that question that I've ever stumbled across. And I've got to tell you, I've read some of the greatest minds who have ever commentated on the Bible. And this surpasses the vast majority of them. Listen to what Rob Lyerly says here in his doctoral thesis on the second coming of Christ and preaching with urgency. This is an, an answering the question, what is the purpose of the Christian's final judgment? if there is no condemnation for the Christian. What's the point? Here's what Lyarly says. There's a direct quote from his thesis. Passages like 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and 1 Corinthians 3, 5-15 reveal that the final judgment is for both the Christian and the unbeliever. Stated differently, the final assessment is not just for damnation. Christ's followers will have their stewardship tested and their eternity will be shaped by their faithfulness to King Jesus. The believer will stand before God as a beloved child, but one's eternal responsibility and eternal reward will be inextricably linked to their faithfulness while on earth. As such, the Christian should be encouraged to live obediently during their earthly life, striving for eternal reward. And the final analysis the faithfulness of the Christian's life will be measured at the final judgment based on what was pursued for the glory of God. What's the purpose of the final judgment for believers? It's simply this, my friends. You and I are going to be evaluated for our stewardship of the Christian life. We will receive eternal reward and eternal responsibilities in the new heavens and in the new earth based on how we utilize our Christian pilgrimage for the advancement of God's kingdom and for the glory of our heavenly father. This reality this reality that we're going to have to give an account for our stewardship of our Christian life and that only those things built on the foundation of Christ, the foundation of Christ. Will stand in the final analysis that we're done for the glory of God and the advancement of the and the advancement of the kingdom of God, all those things considered, you and I should be more motivated than ever before than to press on in our spiritual journey with everything we have. Again, we recognize God is absolutely sovereign over all things. We recognize we have a stewardship and a responsibility as the followers of Jesus Christ that we are. Those truths are not incompatible. Rather, they're perfectly coherent and should be our, our central motivating factor for faithfulness in this life. It is true that God ultimately gives us the grace to do anything that is pleasing to him. But at the human level, we should be as diligent as possible to see God magnified in this life. This is the central Thought that I would encourage you and myself to have as we leave this place tonight? How do we live in light of the reality that you and I are going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ as Christians? This should be stamped on our eyeballs, if I could use the phrase from Jonathan Edwards. Here it is. Ask yourself this. It should be a daily challenge and a daily reminder. Is what I'm doing honoring to the Lord And is what I'm doing useful to advancing the kingdom and glory of God? That's it. Every decision we make, every thought we have, every choice we make, every circumstance we find ourselves in, the central thought in our mind should be this is what I'm doing, is how I'm behaving, is how I'm thinking, is how I'm talking, honoring to the Lord. And is what I'm doing useful to advancing the kingdom and glory of God? Could you imagine how different our lives and our churches would be if we would just remind ourselves of questions as simple as that, challenges as simple as that? Imagine if you were consumed with the thought that someday you're going to stand before Jesus Christ and He's going to evaluate what you did as a follower of His. And you're going to receive eternal reward for that stewardship. My prayer is that First Baptist Church of Edna would be filled with believers who live all of their lives for the glory of God. And of course, this takes us now to considering the final stage of the believer's eternal destination. I've just given you the eternal, or excuse me, I've given you the intermediate state, I've given you the judgment experience. Let's look at the eternal eschatological consummate destination that you and I are going to experience and enjoy as the people of God. My friends, you and I, after standing before Jesus Christ and having spent time in the intermediate state, assuming He doesn't return first, you and I are going to receive a glorified resurrection body. We're going to dwell in a renewed creation, free from sin, wickedness, disease, and all the dreadful consequences that came by virtue of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. If you weren't here for my analysis of the Ordo Salutis uh, back in Article 4, I want to encourage you to go online and listen to that particular lesson. I, I really went through the entire process, and at least in the mind of God, that is, of how we experience salvation from eternity past to eternity future. Um, but for tonight's purposes, I don't have much time to get into the doctrine of glorification. I'm going to touch on it briefly, but... Um, This idea of having a renewed body, dwelling in the new heavens and the new earth, this touches on the doctrine of glorification. If you weren't here um, for Article 4, please go back and listen to that, especially towards the end. I think you'll be greatly blessed from the Word of God. Um, But for our purposes tonight, I want to touch on the glorification that you and I will someday experience. Just very briefly. give you some passages to read over as well that highlight this doctrine. We know from 1 Corinthians 15... Verses 35 through 57. Of course, we read earlier from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13. And Revelation 21 and 22. Those are some beautiful passages of glorification. These should be passages that we read and meditate on frequently because it's what we have to look forward to. 1 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 57. 1 Thessalonians 4:13 through 17, 2 Peter 3:10 through 13, and Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Read those this week. Meditate on those. Talk it over with your spouses, your children, your friends. Enjoy dwelling on the beauty of glorification. Let me briefly define glorification. The reality of glorification is a point of essential doctrine. It's a biblical reality that is so clear in Scripture that Southern Baptists and Orthodox Christians must be willing to die for. This is a doctrine that is fundamental to our hope and our eternal joy. In our glorified bodies, you and I are going to live in a new creation, a renewed creation without sin. We're going to be perfectly equipped to serve our Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. And by God's sustaining grace, our glorified bodies will function in such a way where we maximize His glory and His pleasure in the new heavens and the new earth. And I'm going to be the dewy dovel I was created to be, and you're going to be the man or woman of God that you were created to be from before the foundation of the world. You're going to fit seamlessly into this restored creation, and you are going to have more joy than you could ever imagine. You're going to bask in the glory and love of God You're going to dwell with every redeemed saint who's ever lived, and we will enjoy unending and eternal fellowship forever and ever. Philippians 3.21 describes this supernatural transformation in this way. Another good verse to reflect on as we prepare to leave tonight. Philippians 3.21 says this, Our Lord Jesus Christ will transform the body of our lowly condition into conformity with His glorious body, By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. You want to know what glorification is, my friends, if I could give it to you? Simple that a a four or five year old could grasp, it's this. Glorification is being made exactly like Jesus Christ. It's to be made exactly like Christ in every respect. Thought, word, deed, desires. You're going to perfectly reflect Christ in a unique way. That's proper to how God has designed and created you and how he's designed and created me. What a joy we have to look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. I hope you were blessed tonight. I hope that this wasn't too much. I know I'm long-winded, but my friends, this is the word of God. And if this wasn't true, there'd be no purpose in us showing up tonight. May our lives be forever conformed to these realities as we leave this place. And may we live with the fullness of joy, ready to encounter anything that our Lord puts in our path so we might maximize his glory in light of the great hope that awaits us in his heavenly kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we echo the words of the Apostle John in Revelation 22.20 in that the cry of our hearts is for Christ to return quickly. Father, we long for the day that we will see our Savior face to face, for the day in which, we were, in which we will be made exactly as He is through Your sovereign work of glorification. But God, we also know that Christ will not return until the last elect saint comes to save in faith. We know that, we know that that's about as far as we can go in putting a limitation on when Christ returns, and it, we really don't know when that's going to be. For all we know, it could be tomorrow. But God, we, we just ask that The reality that you were building a kingdom and the reality that you were drawing all of your beloved to yourself, that you have set your saving and redeeming love on from before the foundation of the world. We pray those realities would motivate us more than ever before to take the gospel to those you have placed in our lives. Father, help us to be good stewards of every responsibility and task you've entrusted unto us until our Lord returns or he calls us home. And most importantly, Father, on a pastoral note, I just pray that we would never be those who divide over the finer details of eschatology. Lord, we recognize that these are important subjects to discuss and even intriguing subjects to discuss. But God, I just ask that we would focus more on the unity that we have on the essential matters of eschatology than the potentially diverse or divisive views that we might have on the non-essential aspects of this doctrine. Help us to model humility, grace, and Christ-like love towards our brothers and sisters in Christ as we gauge in discussions on the last things and on any other discussions on doctrine that might come up. We thank you for this time of corporate worship. God, I thank you for every person in this room. Lord, they're so faithful to devoting time out of their week to serve you, to worship you, and to dwell with one another in the context of the local church. Lord, strengthen us as a fellowship, as a community of faith and help us to be the men, women, and local church that you have called us to be in accordance with your word. We love you, God. We give you all the honor and praise, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.